0: First John chapter 3, page 1196 in those church Bibles. Let's pray first. Lord, thank you for this time together in your house. We trust that you have been glorified through our worship, and now we pray that you would be glorified as we study your word together, as we take note of these things that you would say to us even today. So give us ears to hear what you would say to the church today, to each of us, as you would speak to us through the pages of your word. Strengthen our hearts, Lord. We live at a time when it can become pretty weary to live in this world, but we trust you, Lord, to strengthen our hearts, and we look to your word now for your encouragement and for, Lord, your grace and for your strength. We praise you together in Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. 1 John chapter 3, we left off last week in the first couple of verses, so I'll back up and read again. Verse 1, where he says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Underline that phrase in your Bible, children of God. And then if you would jump down to verse 10, where he says, In this, The children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. So now in verse 10, you can underline the phrase children of the devil. (laughs) I don't know if you ever thought about the world like that, but there are children of God and there are children of the devil. And there's no DMZ. There's nothing in between. Okay. You're one or the other. Now, we mentioned this last week that a lot of times people affectionately, generically in the world refer to everybody as God's children. And I know what they mean by that. What they mean is we are all created in his image and his likeness. But strictly speaking, we are not all God's children. There are children of the devil and there are children of God. In in John chapter 1 verse 12, the Bible says, but as many as received him... Jesus to them that believed on his name. He gave the right. It's a right. It's a privilege To be called the children of god The way you become strictly speaking by definition a child of god Is by knowing jesus christ as your lord and savior Having a relationship with jesus Makes you then a child of god So we can go around all day long saying well, everybody's a child of god. Everybody's a child of god in terms of all of us being created in His image and likeness, yes, but in terms of really belonging to the family, not unless you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And I hate to shock you with this news bulletin, but if you don't know Christ as your Savior, by default, you are a child of the devil. Now listen, don't, don't send me emails on that. I'm just telling you, this is what John writes here. He's going to contrast for us the difference between the children of God versus the children of the devil in these next few verses here in chapter 3. Now, before we actually read through this, uh, I want to take you back to, the, to um, the gospel of John. If you go back to John chapter 8, just keep your finger there in 1 John. We'll come back. But in John chapter 8, this is, and this is, this is where John, okay, this is the same John who wrote the gospel of John as wrote 1 John. Second John, Third John, and, and Revelation. The reason why we're, we're going to read in 1 John chapter 3 the difference between children of God and children of the devil is because he learned it from the lips of Jesus. Jesus has this conversation in John's Gospel chapter 8 that where he talks about, in very strong terms, uh, people who believe in him and who follow him and people who don't. And so in John's Gospel, chapter 8, you can just listen, or if you have turned there in your Bibles, uh, I'm going to read verse 31 down through verse 47. This is what it says, John 8, verse 31. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And they answered him, We are Abraham's descendants, and have never been in bondage to anyone, how can you say you will be made free? Okay, now notice it says, Jesus said to those Jews who believed him. Okay, so they believed him, but they didn't understand how to belong to him. And so they challenge him when he gets through saying, you know, he whom the son sets free is free indeed. And they're like, well, we've never been in bondage. You know, we, we're the children of Abraham. How could you say that we shall be set free? Cause see, they didn't understand spiritual bondage. They didn't understand. They were thinking strictly physical bondage, physical slavery. And they're like, well, we're not slaves. So why would you speak to us in these terms? So how can you say we will be made free? Verse 34, Jesus answered them, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sins. He's going to talk about being, being a slave spiritually here. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Okay. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Indeed. So that word son in verse 36 is capitalized because he's talking about himself, but in verse 35, when he talks about, but a son abides forever, he's talking about son, small s, like, do you belong to the family? If you, if you, if you belong to the family, it's going to be because the son capital S O N Jesus has set you free. And so you belong to God's family and you're, and you're part of his household. You're a child of God. And then he goes on to say, Jesus says in verse 37, I know that you are Abraham's descendants. I mean, I know your heritage. I know your pedigree, you're Jews, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father and you do what you have seen with your father. Now, now note this. They're not going to get it just yet. He's going to have to spell it out for him. But he says, basically, I have a daddy and you have a daddy and they are not the same. So verse 39, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. They still don't get it. And then they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Now, This is a a slander. Who are they slandering? They're slandering Jesus right there. Because they know his reputation, you see, having been born of a virgin, okay, because God miraculously came and took on flesh, but in their minds, they just thought that Mary had slept around, and so that's how she got pregnant, and so they're slandering him. They're like, well, you know, we were not born of fornication. Uh, We have one Father, and it's God. And Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. In other words, you don't belong to the family here. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. And now this is where he gets specific. Why do you not understand my speech? He answers his own question. Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil. ouch is right and the desires of your father you want to do he, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who was of God hears God's words, therefore you do not hear because you are not of God. Okay, well that goes on and on. But here's the point. So John obviously is writing this because he is hearing Jesus himself now describe how there are two groups of people. And and this isn't to be disparaging, this is just to be accurate and factual. You either belong to God or you don't. And if you don't belong to God, you are by, by default a child of the devil. And this is why they were wanting to persecute Jesus. This is why they were wanting to stone him. This is why they were wanting to kill him, because they believed him, but they didn't have relationship with him. And thus, they were not belonging to the family of God. And so Jesus says, you, you belong to another family. Your father is the devil, Okay. So back here now in first John chapter three, this is where John's going with this. He's like, I, I heard this from Jesus himself. I know a little bit about what I'm talking. And he says, uh, there are two groups of people. You're either classified as a child of God or you you're a child of the devil. You either live for the Lord or you live for the world. You either belong to Jesus or you don't. And, and so he's going to say a few things here. And I've just got three simple bullet points on, on each column about the children of God versus the children of the devil. So He starts out here in uh, in verse uh, one again. Behold, what manner of love the father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, when Jesus is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And so we mentioned last week that. This is talking about the glorified state, that Jesus became glorified in his, in his body, and thus there's going to be a day when we are with the Lord that we as Christians will also have glorified bodies. So I'm going to put the three bullet points in, in this column, and, and here's the first one, that we shall be glorified like Jesus. That's one of the things that is unique about the children of God we get glorified bodies like Jesus does and that's what he means when he says there that we uh, we know that when he is revealed we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is so we're going to be like Jesus and and uh, Paul would write in Philippians 3:21 that God will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body and verse 3 says and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. In other words, the idea of the hope of heaven and and, spending eternity with the Lord and having a glorified body should motivate us to holy living. That's what he's saying here. Everybody who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. Verse four, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he, Jesus, was manifested to take away our sins and in him there is no sin so we need to understand this right jesus committed no sin hebrews 4 15 says that he was tempted in every way as we are yet was without sin jesus became a perfect sacrifice for our sins now the bible says that he took on our sins and the penalty accompanying our sins but he himself knew no sin god made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in christ we might become the righteousness of god is what paul writes to the corinthians so so this is important for us to understand that jesus was without sin but he took on our sin he paid the penalty for our sin that's why he died on the cross for our sin and verse six he adds whoever abides in him and we talked about this word abide um, he uses it uh, 20 times in totality in the in this little epistle of first john 20 times it talks about abiding Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Now, you can can read this, and if you don't understand context here, you can start to think to yourself, man, I'm not even saved. I mean, when you read stuff like that and say, okay, well, whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. So I know that on the way over here, I sinned, you know. And because I was yelling at my wife or my, I was yelling at my husband or I was, you know, angry at my kids. or So I guess I'm not even a Christian. All right, now, so hold on here, because when we get to verse 9, I'll explain it a little bit more. But little children, he says, little children, verse 7, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he, the Lord, is righteous. He who sins is of the devil... For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. For his seed, the Lord's seed, remains in him and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. This is very challenging stuff here. And what we need to understand is that when he writes in verse 9... Whoever's been born of God does not sin in the Greek original language. It is in the present active infinitive. That's important grammatically because what it means is habitual sin. He is not preaching here. He's not John is not teaching sinless perfection. He is saying there's a difference between sinning and the habitual continual practice of that sin. He's not saying there is sinless perfection because he would be contradicting himself. Back in chapter 1, glance back to chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. In chapter 1, verse 8, he says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's why he says in verse 9, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So at the end of chapter one, he makes it pretty clear. We sin, even as Christians, we're fallen creatures. And so thankfully, we can confess our sin to Jesus. We can be forgiven of our sin, cleansed from all unrighteousness. So here in chapter three, he's not contradicting chapter one. What he's talking here about is that a Christian does not engage in continual habitual sin. That there are times we're going to stumble from time to time. Our flesh is weak. Our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. And there will be times that our flesh caves in to sinful temptations. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying we should do it. I'm just saying as a matter of reality, sometimes our flesh gets the best of us. We're tempted and we fall. We sin. So he's not saying here, sinless perfection marks a Christian but he's saying a Christian does not continual, continue in habitual sin. It's the present active infinitive. You don't keep doing something over and over and over again and then think, well, I'm redeemed because the life of a Christian should be marked by the fruit of righteousness. And that's verse 7. That's the third bullet point under the column. A believer, a child of God practices righteousness. Now, he contrasts this with children of the devil. And we already read verse 8 which is one of the things that he says about those who belong to the devil verse 8 he who sins is of the devil for the devil has sinned from the beginning and for this purpose the son of god was manifested it might destroy the works of the devil so satan is still working to to tempt us and to lead us into sin god doesn't lead us into sin the enemy does satan does And somebody who belongs to the devil just does what is natural to that sin nature. If you're not redeemed, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, you're just going to continue to practice sin and do habitual sin and and do things that you normally do if you don't know Christ, because you don't have the Spirit of God in you to help you. So you just do what your flesh desires. And he goes on to say in verse 10, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. So so that's the second bullet point under children of the devil, does not practice righteousness because you're not of the Lord, nor nor is he who does not love his brother. So that's another bullet point that he says here, marks those who do not belong to the Lord. Now, the word love there is a word that he loves to use um, throughout this epistle. 45 times John uses the word love in five chapters, that is more times than any other book of the New Testament. And every time John uses the word love, it is always the Greek word agape, which is the highest, most supreme form of love. And he, and he says there, and he's going he's to launch into this section now in the rest of chapter three about what is real love. He's going to talk about how, how are we to love others. And one of the things that marks us as followers of Christ is that we love our brother. We love our sister. We love people. And again, it's not this, you know, it's not this love, this superficial love. It is agape love. We love them with the love of the Lord. As a believer, we are to love people with the love of the Lord. We are to genuinely love others as he has loved us. We're to, we are to exemplify jesus said by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another and so he, he ends verse 10 by saying you know somebody who belongs to the devil doesn't love his brother versus us we should verse 11 for this is the message that you heard from the beginning that we should love one another not as cain who was of the wicked one he was motivated by by the devil, obviously, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. So, you know, this is the story back in the garden. Uh, After um, they had been expelled from the garden, Adam and Eve, they had a couple of sons, Cain and Abel. And um, Cain kills his brother Abel, all because of jealousy. It's really what it was because abel offered a sacrifice to the lord that was a righteous sacrifice and cain did not and so cain's offering was rejected and abel's was accepted and so cain kills his brother over it all because of jealousy he murdered his brother all because of jealousy so john says who do you think was the motivator behind that it was the devil Because Cain was, you know, just giving in to the temptations of the enemy. Just jealousy in his flesh and and he, and he succumbed to it. Kills his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his works were evil. His brothers were righteous. So verse 13, he says, Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Please underline that in your Bibles. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. As a follower of Christ... You will not always be liked and this is an important thing for us to grasp because we live in a day We live in a culture that is all about how many likes you get (laughs) All right, that's that's all that the world has become on social media now How many likes did I get and your whole self-image rises and falls on how many thumbs you got on your social media? How many liked your picture? How many liked your post? How many liked what you wrote? And if a bunch of people really like you, you feel good. If you don't get a bunch of likes, you feel depressed. And so we're living in a culture where everything about us is dependent on how much we're liked. And we got to get over ourselves. We got to get over ourselves. In Matthew chapter 5, 11 and 12, Jesus said, Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you, and say all manner of evil against you for my name's sake. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets that were before you, great is your reward in heaven. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus also talked about how the world will hate us, Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, when he was talking about persecutions that are coming, you live for your faith, there's going to be persecutions that are coming. And he said in Matthew 10, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. Let me say it to you this way. If you don't have at least some people in your life either at work or your family or neighbor, who don't like you. If you at least have some people who don't like you, you probably aren't living enough for the Lord. Let's let that sink in just a little bit. If everybody likes you, you, you can't be living for the Lord. There's going to be somebody who doesn't like you just by virtue of the fact that that you're living for Jesus. So we need to take inventory of our hearts and our lives and think to ourselves, if everybody likes me, why is that? Why does everybody like me in my life? Okay, now I'm not encouraging you to do stuff so that you'll be hated, (laughs) okay? Because it's easy for us to do that, all right? You can tick somebody off in a New York minute if you want to. So I'm not, I'm not suggesting go around, try to make enemies. I'm just simply saying, if you really intentionally are living for Jesus, there's going to bound to be people who don't like you because you're just living for the Lord and you wanting to do what is right. And Jesus tells us this blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you for my name's sake, people are going to do that. If you're connected to Jesus, some people will simply not like you because of your faith in Jesus. And so when John writes here, do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you, and you read this and you go, well, everybody loves me, I don't, I don't know why you would say that, then I, I would say, how, how bold is your witness for Jesus? Because some people will say things about you if you're living for the Lord. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised if you're hated. Don't be surprised if people gossip about you, talk about you, post stuff on social media about you because of your faith. OK, um, it's bound to happen. You know, now I because I'm, you know, in a public role and, you know, in, in ministry and everything we do gets archived on our website, You know, uh, I have people who and I, I stopped looking a long time ago, but I have people who would send me messages like, oh, you ought to see this person copied a clip of what you said and they posted it on their social media and it's on fire. It's gone viral now. And it's ugly stuff. It's ugly stuff. Like, okay, it's going to happen, right? It just increased my prayer life for that person. That's all that it did. But you should expect this to some degree. People aren't going to like what you stand for. People aren't going to like what you believe. Um, It's okay. They didn't like Jesus either. They didn't like the prophets who were before you. But great is your reward in heaven. So keep living for the Lord. Don't back down. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he goes on to say in verse 14, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So in verse 16, starting in this next section um, it, he, he kind of outlines here how we are to love others. So verse 16, by this, we know love because he, Jesus laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So, if you're taking notes, one of the first ways we're to love others is sacrificially. Now, you know, he's talking here about Jesus laid down his life. We should be willing to die. Uh, obviously, this is first century. Uh, they're being martyred. Um, it's it's a very um, uh, bloody century for the early church, and so he's writing very literally here. Um, you know, we're, we're living in a time when it's a lot more comfortable and, and our lives may not necessarily be required of us for our faith. Although I think we should always be living in a way as if it could. And, and if our lives are required of us, you know, I, was it was a Columbine or I forget which tragedy it was where, um, you know, kids were being asked in in the school before they were shot, you know, are you going to renounce your faith in Jesus? And, and people would say no, and they would be killed. You know, it's unthinkable to us that even in our day, people might die for their faith, but it can happen. And, and so we should be prepared to lay down our lives if necessary. But in general, so just spiritually speaking, if not for the moment, literally speaking, love should be sacrificial. Um, love's not always convenient. Love's not an emotion, by the way. Love's not a feeling. You know, I know that we treat it like that. It's just, I, I, I'm sorry, love is an emotion, but it's not a feeling in the sense that it's all about how we feel. Love is, is, is sometimes, uh, hear me on this, love is sometimes a decision. Love is a discipline. Um, we love when it's not always convenient. We love when it's not always comfortable. And sacrificial love is not always easy. Because if there's a sacrifice, it means that there's something inconvenient. But as Jesus laid down his life, which was a tad bit inconvenient, uh, so should we be willing to love in a way that is sometimes inconvenient towards others. We should love sacrificially. Verse 17, but whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, How does the love of God abide in him? So number two, our love should be materially, he says there. He says, you know, if you really love, and uh, there's one way that we can show love, and that's materially helping somebody who has material needs. James would say in James 2.16, if one of you says to a brother or to a sister, go, I wish you well, keep warm and be well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? And so sometimes love takes the form of materially helping someone, and uh, and you know, and I'm I'm blessed uh, around the holidays because I hear how you know people, and and some people have, um, and this is a good thing. Some people have used the church to kind of be an anonymous um, intermediary between themselves and a family that's in need because they don't necessarily want a family to know who's helping them. So sometimes we'll, we'll get people who will uh, just bring wads of cash and say, would you please give this to family? So-and-so we just don't want them to know it was us. And, and we'll do that. I mean, this is the kind of thing where, you know, people are just motivated, especially you see it around the holidays to just think of others materially. And so, you know, I'm always blessed by that when I, you know, I, I hear, I mean, you know, there was a, a single lady in our church and she needed a new roof. And uh, so we paid for the roof and and several people in our church provided the manual labor and went over and put a new roof on our house. And, And this is the kind of thing where, you know, we don't want to just say like James says, hey, God bless you. Be well fed and clothed, but we do nothing to help the material needs. Part of the church is to love in a way that is also materially where if you have the means and you see people who don't, it's a way that we can show the love of the Lord to them. He says in verse 18, my little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Now, let me clarify. What what he literally means is, let us not love only in word or tongue, but also in deed and in truth. So he tells us here, love verbally, Because that's he's he's comparing here. Don't don't love only in word or tongue, but it's good to do that. It's good to say verbally that you love somebody, but then also love them indeed, love them practically, show them, and love them in truth, love them truthfully, be honest and sincere in your love towards them. And he and he says in verse nineteen, and by this we know that we are of the truth, and shall assure our hearts before Him. For if our heart condemns us. God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. Now, let me just back up and explain this. Um, For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. Everybody needs to understand, if you don't already, there's a difference between condemnation and conviction. Does everybody get that? There's a difference between condemnation and conviction. In Christ, Paul writes in Romans 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. So one, once you become a Christian, Jesus has paid the price, took the shame, took the guilt, took our sin. If you're still walking in condemnation, then you either have a super sensitive heart where you are, you know, condemning yourself or, or you've not totally just walked in the, um, in, in that forgiveness and, and given that shame and guilt to the Lord. Or maybe the enemy keeps reminding you of you, remember when you did this, remember when you did this, even though you've confessed it as sin and God's forgiven you of it. So, so what he's saying here is, you know, don't walk in condemnation. Because, because he says, if your heart begins to condemn you, Spurgeon said it this way. He said, sometimes our heart condemns us, but in doing so gives a wrong verdict. But we have the satisfaction of taking the case to a higher court where God is greater than our hearts. And so don't walk around in condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation that are in Christ Jesus. And that's why John adds here, God's greater than our heart. So if your heart starts to condemn you, take it to the Lord and let God remind you of his forgiveness and his grace. Conviction, however, is a necessary thing. Jesus said in John 16, verse 8, that part of the mission of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin. So when I do something that is sinful or wrong and displeasing to God, and I feel that conviction of the Holy Spirit, that's a good thing. And if you feel conviction of the Holy Spirit, that's a good thing. Don't walk around going, I rebuke that conviction in Jesus' name. I rebuke that. That's the Holy Spirit. Okay? But there's a difference between conviction. Okay, that was not right. Shouldn't have said that. Shouldn't have done that. Lord, forgive me. I confess it a sin. Cleanse my heart. And condemnation, which is, I'm I'm guilty, I'm never going to be forgiven, this thing haunts me, I'm just never going to be right with God, and, and that kind of rehearsing over and over again, what the enemy loves to bring up, what we bring up ourselves, because we're unforgiving often towards ourselves, even though God has forgiven us, don't be people of condemnation. But yes, we should be people who are under conviction. And then he adds, Um, in verse 21, beloved, if our heart does condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ and love one another as he gave us commandment. Now he says there in verse 22, and whatever we ask, we receive from him. Is every time you ask God, do you actually receive from him? So it's always important to balance scripture with scripture. And if you go over a couple of chapters to chapter 5, let me show you what else he writes here in chapter 5, verse 14. In chapter 5, verse 14, he says, Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. You know, I'm thankful that there are some times that God has said no to me, because if I had gotten what I asked for, it would have been a mess. But what I asked for was not necessarily in accordance with his will. And when it's not in accordance with his will, obviously God is not obligated to give us anything. So when you look at Scripture with Scripture, when he says back here in chapter 3, and whatever we ask, we receive from him, don't think that everything you ask you're going to get from God. Do your kids get everything from you? Aren't you a little bit smarter than a three-year-old? So when your three-year-old wants donuts for dinner and Pop-Tarts for lunch and Twinkies, do they still make Twinkies for breakfast? I think they brought back the Twinkies, didn't they? You're going to say as a loving parent, no, and your kid's going to throw a fit, but you know better than they, that you can't have a diet of Twinkies, Pop-Tarts, and donuts. And so there are sometimes that in our prayer lives, we're asking things that are the equivalent of Twinkies and Pop-Tarts and donuts. And God's like, that's not good for you. And I'm not going to give you that. And we're like, wah, wah. And God's like, "I, I know you're upset that you're not getting this, but it's because I know just a little bit more than you do. And so don't think that everything we ask we get, because not everything we ask is in accordance with His will. But in general, one of the beauties of the relationship with the Lord is that when we come to Him and we pray according to His will and we make our requests known, He hears us. And He honors our prayers. Verse 23, And this is His commandment, that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He gave us commandment. Verse 24, And now He who keeps His commandments abides in Him. There's that word abide again. And he in him, and by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. I'll close with these last four points to summarize this. He says in verse, uh, back up in verse 19, And by this we know that we are of the truth. And then what I just read at the end of verse 24, he says, And by this we know That he abides in us So he wants us to have an assurance of our of our faith that we belong to him And so here's how we know that we belong to him. This is just summarizing what we just read. The first is god's love in us God's love in us So, you know when when you love other people and you realize that you're loving other people With a capacity that is not your own that god's given you a capacity to love people that otherwise without the lord You wouldn't be able to love can you relate to what i'm saying? Okay, you know that there are times in your life That you genuinely love somebody and it's only because god gave you the capacity It's it's an evidence that the lord is in you Because you don't have the capacity to love like that But god's given you that capacity to love So one of the things that he says is how we know that we belong to him is god's love in us The other thing that he adds there in verses 20 and 21 Is that there's no condemnation when you when you walk around knowing the forgiveness of the lord and you've given the shame and the guilt again. Romans eight one. There's therefore now no condemnation. That testifies to your heart that you belong to Him. Number three, answered prayer is a testimony that you belong to Him. When you have that wonderful opportunity again, not every single time. God's not obligated to answer every single prayer, every single way, every single um, you know time the way we want it. But when you do get answers to those prayers, does it not testify to your heart? how much God cares about you and how much He lives within you. So answered prayer, he adds there. And then finally, he adds there, God's Spirit in us. He he closes out chapter 3 by saying, we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Paul would write in Romans 8.16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And so God bears witness. His Holy Spirit residing in us, bearing witness with our spirit, you belong to me. You're my child. I love you. That's his spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we belong to him. So we'll pick it up there with chapter four next week. You can read ahead, but let's pray and let's uh, close our time in God's word tonight. Lord, thank you for your word and... Thank you for the different ways that you bear witness to our hearts that we belong to you. Your love manifests in us. The fact that there's no condemnation to them that walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Thank you, Lord, for answered prayer. And thank you, Lord, even if it's an answer to prayer, sometimes when you say no. We may not understand it at the time, but it's an answer because you love us. And thank you for your Holy Spirit that bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for this time in your word. Be with us as we go home now. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen Amen and Amen. God bless you all.